I received this invitation to speak on time, and it's both with apprehension that I feel maybe I should say no, because I'm about to start directing a new process in Oxford. I'm a theatre director primarily, who's worked in this academy for the last three, four years. But my first training is as a theatre director. So I feel really I should be working on this new project, which is called Endlessness, in preparation for Tuesday and my rehearsals in Oxford. But then I know that we're going to be thinking about the body in relation to time. So I accept the kind offer and ask for half the amount of time as everybody else. So then I start to write it, and it's quite densely packed, and I'm not showing or playing anything, but I am reading quite a bit, so there's quite a lot to listen to, um, but I should only be about 20 minutes. And it's therefore a sketch rather than a paper. And it draws on my work primarily as a theatre director, and my, my main experience within that practice is with Shakespeare and with Samuel Beckett's drama. Um, the company I run is called Fail Better Productions, which was resident at Warwick between 2008 and 2010. But also, latterly, have emerged as a practice-based researcher in performance studies, so I dare say a bit of that will creep in as well. I'm primarily going to be thinking about time in relation to performance as a, as a liminal relationship, uh, a betwixt and between, which has been quite extensively theorised by people like Turner and Chechner in relation to performance studies. But what we're dealing with here is something that could be recognisable to all performers and maybe to all audiences as well. Um, a relationship between this time, the time spent together in a performance space, a space of presence, and another time, which is, if you like a deferral, but is also terribly important, this other time in theatrical performance is perhaps a memory of a past which has been enacted on stage, perhaps a vision of a future yet to come or entirely fictitious, perhaps another present, perhaps the play is about something else that's going on in the world. So there's this relationship between this time and another time, between the actual and the imaginary, that I'm sort of, in a very circular way, going to explore. I'm going to do that by talking a little bit about representations of time on the theatrical stage. The examples will be, as I said, from, the, from Shakespeare, so we're talking about the early modern period or the Renaissance, where, as Shakespeare tells us, the time must be spent most preciously. And a modernist or postmodernist age of Samuel Beckett, where protagonists, if you know Waiting for Godot, pass the time that would pass in any case. And then towards the end, I'll talk a little bit, although it's largely speculative, about the temporality of theatrical process and the experience of performance, but also crucially, as Nick started to, to uh, highlight as well, rehearsal and the processes that prepare um, bodies for performance. And we've heard a lot about the pulse, and my phrases are going to be the heartbeat and the breath, which keep time for the actor, and possibly also construct time. So... The title I've chosen, uh, The Time Twixt uh, Six and Now, is from The Tempest. Prospero asks Ariel, Ariel, thy charge exactly is performed, but there's more work. What is the time of day? Ariel replies, past the mid-season. Prospero, at least two glasses. The time twixt six and now must by us 
both be spent most preciously. Now, I thought that was a really interesting one to rip out because not only does it introduce now again, which Julian and Nick were just talking about as a sort of multiplicitous thing, but this now of performance time, which is such an important thing for performance makers and where we're going. Now, in relation to the original context, the original practice, Elizabethan performance, there's quite a lot in there. We know it's past the mid-season. We know it's past noon, season being day. We know it's past at least two glasses, hour glasses, past two o'clock. And therefore, the time twixt six and now is the time from, we speculate, between two in the afternoon and six in the evening. Now, if you've got an outdoor playhouse before the invention of electricity, we know that that's almost necessary because we need the daylight to be seen. So we also know that workers or non-workers would have to walk across the Thames uh, on a bridge, hopefully, to outside church rule and to the South Bank where they could watch a play in the afternoon or rather hear a play, which is how they referred to it. So there's that, all of that sort of data, if you like, in that exchange between Prospero and Ariel, which is quite an interesting one because it both uh, asserts their presence as performers and as characters who have work to do on stage. The Tempest, of course, is, as some of you will know, is a late play of Shakespeare's, and it's one that probably most formally obeys Aristotelian unities of time, place and action, which... I don't really have time to talk about time in relation to aesthetics, but that might be something that we talk about later today, and that time is an important dimension of aesthetic unity. There's a flow, a rhythm, a motion to theatrical performance, and this is different, uh, in my example here from the, from the Tempest, it's very different from Shakespeare's history plays, sometimes called chronicles, which introduces another dimension of time, written out uh, of sequence, but today often performed in chronological historical order. In fact, when the RSC did them recently in this county, well, depending on which part campus was standing on, this county, um, they, you could buy a ticket to see it in the order Shakespeare wrote them, which is one mode of historical time, but you could also buy a ticket to watch them in a historical narrative. And that also sets up some very interesting problems in relation to how we encounter the past. Michael Boyd, who directed those production says his one regret at having led sort of years of uh, uh, work with one ensemble to create those histories was not to employ a neurologist of some kind to observe what this learning of many many plays eight plays did to the brains of the actors who not only had to learn all of these parts and all of these physical actions but also all of the understudy versions of them as well so, actually, then I thought history plays, Richard II is a history play, and it also finishes with a very interesting... Well, not finishes, but he's about to be killed. His prison soliloquy shows Richard embodying time. I wasted time, and now doth time waste me, for now hath time made me his numbering clock. My thoughts are minutes, and with sighs they jar their watchers on unto mine eyes, the outward watch whereto my finger, like a dial's point, is pointing still in cleansing them from tears. Now, sir, the sound that tells what hour it is are clamorous groans, which strike upon my heart, which is the bell. So sighs and tears and groans show minutes, times and hours. 
So again, I was interested in how this took us to a sense of now, or nowness, which again, um, Julian and Nick had a really interesting exchange about. Um, but the nowness in the early modern theatrical, on the early modern theatrical stage, is emphasised, is always it's repeatedly emphasised, particularly in soliloquies, because it sort of reasserts the corporeal presence of both the performer and its audience together. And um, elsewhere in Shakespeare, supernatural characters tend to compress or distort this sense of nowness. Uh, a good example. Uh, is the Weird Sisters in Macbeth. And they construct sort of alternative or displaced falsehoods, and we know that something is wrong with time from the very first scene. It's not now, it's when. When shall we three meet again, in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won? That will be ere the set of sun. This sense of an unknown but likely future is important. A distinction between a nowness this time and a whenness another time, but it still propels the action on. There is this moment and a future moment in the play, if you like. One final example from Shakespeare concerns not the temporality of a first scene, but the temporality of a final scene. And this is where I'm going to start to make a connection to Beckett through ideas of ending or ends. Um, in this case, in words spoken by a survivor at the end of the tragedy of King Lear. The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest have borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. And they're the last lines of the play. Exeunt with a de dead march is usually what some editors will put at the end of that. Although, of course, that is an editorial assumption. However, they're the last lines, and they're sometimes ascribed to Albany, sometimes to Edgar. But that sense of tragic time, the end of a narrative time, but yet the bodies still being there and still communicating is something that interests me a lot as a theatre maker. There's a distinction in Edgar's words between this sad time and another sad time that has to be contained simultaneously in the audience's imagination. And this is the temporal condition occupied by many protagonists in the drama of Samuel Beckett. And there are, I mean, it's not an arbitrary connection, this. I mean, Jan Cott has written very well in Shakespeare or Contemporary about King Lear and Endgame as in conversation with each other, even though they're separated by many, many years. So in Beckett's play, Waiting for Godome, time has stopped. This is something the characters talk about quite a lot. Time has stopped. At this point in the presentation... Examples were given from Beckett's plays Waiting for Godot, Endgame, and Ohio Impromptu. They concerned the attempt to end, and within that, an awareness of endlessness. But a character knocks, which is the signal for the story to go on. There is nothing left to tell. The bodies remain expressionless and look up at each other. So again, we have one of these moments where the ending seems to magnify the experience of endlessness within the bodies. And this notion, this thing that Beckett's exploring and is aware is a problematic word to introduce to a play, particularly in the early 80s, mind, or mindlessness, as he reframes it, almost overwhelms time, light and space at the end of this story. It seems to be something that endures beyond those um, coordinates. 
And as we've seen with Shakespeare and now Beckett, even after the ending is announced, the human body ensures the survival of something after. And I couldn't sort of talk about Beckett in time without talking about his play, That Time. So here it is. Um, and my final Beckett example, this is slightly early, 1975, in which Beckett's sort of dramatising the impossibility um, of transcending the role temporality plays in subjective experience. And this is a preoccupation of Beckett's. And you'll notice when I talk about his plays, I'm alluding to a possible meaning rather than actual meaning. And this is largely because Beckett um, would never talk about his work and did not know what they meant. They are, it, the work is the work. And it was always the same thing for him. And it was the nearest he could get to expressing something, but always would acknowledge that it was impossible to express anything. So Beckett had this um, troubled relationship to meaning. But an, a, a preoccupation with time, and um, many members of the Beckett family are musicians, and Beckett could play piano himself. At this point in the presentation, two examples were given from Beckett's play That Time, concerning the relationship between a disembodied head and three voices. So before there was the sort of known time and unknown time, it would seem that there's a progression towards something that's more unknown than known, which in listening to the science this morning has some parallels. But also with the Beckett play, and I couldn't talk about this without mentioning this, the stage directions after these beautiful voices are silence, ten seconds, breath audible, after three seconds, eyes open, after five seconds, smile, toothless for preference, hold five seconds till fade out and curtain. So working underneath all that is this intense musical and some have argued mathematical rigour that Beckett worked within. His use of precise timing for actors often looks like instructions for dancers or musicians rather than what actors are used to from their own training. Which brings me sort of to my last phase, which is about the heartbeat and the breath as kind of regulators, if you like, or timekeepers of performance and rehearsal. In relation to performance, I was reminded of this reading Gene Newlove on Laban. Laban is a dance choreographer, which is why there's a dance school in, a school in London called Laban. But he thought he could notate time in the human body. And actually, we haven't talked a lot about dance today, but I think it's interesting that music, sort of drama follows on from music, and we should acknowledge that there's probably quite a lot that uh, the choreographer, the dancer, could add to this conversation. The heartbeat and the breath are different rhythms, but they're both central to how an actor understands time. They drive the performance forward. They allow them to share rhythms with other members of the ensemble. They support the metric and choreographic rhythms of the performance. They represent a metaphor, if you like, for the dual temporalities of performance itself. As I was saying earlier, there's a kind of narrative dramatic time in a performance, the fictional time, if you like, the time being presented to you, the audience, and a performative theatrical time, which is actually being experienced by the audience. I don't know, a, a rough example would be a play that takes place over ten years, but is an hour long. There are other layers as well that I don't have time to go into, but it might be worth pointing out here, that, which is why I did the reference about Michael Boyd earlier, that performers, the performer's memory of the performance is an interesting area of emergent research within performance studies and neurology. The performing body blurs time and space, like the playhouse itself, like the architectural space of performance. The playhouse is often understood culturally as a memory space. 
it, it represents another time. It's a place where stories from elsewhere are told in our time. So it's also a communal space, paradoxically, of this time, of coming together and dwelling together as a community to hear a play, to see a play. Um, more recently, I suppose, it's also become um, very consciously an ideological space, representing a potential other time in the future. So these issues of temporality are very live in relation to understanding what theatre and performance are. I thought I should reference those. My own work, latterly, is, is more about rehearsal, and so a few thoughts about that before I finish. Rehearsal contains a fascinating tension between a creative present, the time of making, and a theatrical event, which is a time of performance. One can't exist without the other, otherwise you wouldn't be there rehearsing. So there's an interesting relationship between presence and deferral there. Rehearsal is a time zone for repeated action. Some of you will know the French word is repetition, so it's re repetition as rehearsal, literally where we repeat with a difference. And there's a lot of work within the discipline thinking about Deleuze in relation to that. Thinking about my own experience as a theatre director, I was trying to think about the different like shifts in time or the different temporalities that exist in relation to rehearsal and just to sketch those out for you I suppose we begin with a protracted sense of time an exploratory phase where human behaviour is slowed down and put under intense almost laboratory um, levels of scrutiny but then it's compressed because there's also performance time not the time that it actually takes for this experience to um, play out but actually the time it might take in the moment of watching it. So that's a protraction and a compression. Then there's a fragmentation. A technical re rehearsal would be a good example of this, where other elements, like sound, space, come in and fragment the time that has already been um, constructed. An intensification of time, as we've heard from Nick, performers often, particularly on first nights, experience time in a different way to the audience, um, which blurs those questions of nowness uh, what now is anyway and ultimately it's condemned to be a cyclical thing particularly in the case of actors who have to do the same show lots of times in a week maybe for years so rehearsal and sometimes performance are processes where failure is generative as long as there remains the possibility of starting again so this is we have this really interesting relationship to failure in that it's sort of necessary for the creativity of experimentation but uh, more problematic in performance. So, to draw these strands together, final statement. These interrelated thoughts, I suppose, are an attempt to sketch out a map of theatrical time and also a creative uh, way of understanding temporality, where time is both absolute and abstract simultaneously, where it's both present and transcendent, and crucially always located in the body and its performances. To return to the Tempest... Prospero asks to be released for, at the end of the play from the temporal bonds of performance with the help of your good hands, the audience's applause. And applause is an interesting example of the, some of the questions that I've raised. Um, when an audience claps along, following a rhythm, there is the illusion of collective time. But when they applaud normally, and in that sort of fluttery way, they sound, I suppose, a bit like one of the strongest images I've taken from the day, Julian's bees swarming in nothingness, which returns the hive to the chaos of 
whatever everyday life is. So that's, that's, that's the end. I think, I don't know, was that 20 minutes? I have no sense of time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.